tell the audience about how you got started in real estate. Welcome to the Masters in Real Estate podcast with your host, Tanner Webster. Cool. All right. Barrett, welcome to the studio. All right. Thanks so much for setting this up, Tanner. I uh, did a lot of research on you beforehand, just watching old podcasts, looking up old tweets. And the thing that I realized is you are an absolute beast. I'm excited to have you here. <laughs> uh, wanted to get back, kind of go back to the beginning of your career, how you got started. Um, you got started at a great time, 2005, as a mortgage broker. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, before we get started, I want to let you know. So I was talking with my wife and daughter as I was coming over. I said, I'm meeting with a guy named Tanner Webster. And my daughter's in an age where she rewatches some of the old shows that we enjoyed as kids. And she's watching Full House. And she said, oh, you're meeting with a guy named Tanner. Is he in any way related <laughs> to Full House? So, so my daughter, Natalie, was very excited for the first time that I'm on a podcast. So she might be listening. So, so I'm excited about that. Happy to have you here. So. <laughs> okay, so 2005, I started as a mortgage broker uh, right out of school. Um, I didn't really know what I was gonna do. And my wife was kind of, then, then girlfriend was saying, you need to do something in real estate, you like numbers. Um, I found a job posting for you. <laughs> so I didn't have this like big, uh, grand plan to go into real estate finance. This was literally my girlfriend saying, hey, here's a job posting. You would be good at this. What were you uh, doing before? Uh, I got a general business degree from SMU. Oh, very nice. Okay. And so I went in, did well in the interview. They offered me a job and that's that's how I got into the real estate business. And it ended up being the perfect first role for me and really a role that I highly recommend to other young people as a great first exposure to the real estate business. Because on the finance side of the business and, and real estate finance or mortgage brokerage, commercial mortgage brokerage, what that means for some people is you're actually arranging the financing of projects for all types of people, developers, syndicators, or just individuals who are trying to buy something. In my case, I was mostly working on hotels, apartments, and single tenant triple net properties. But in that role, I'm getting to see the operating agreements. I'm getting to see the insurance. I'm getting to see the title commitments. Um, all the pieces of the puzzle, I, I was getting to see them. And so the first six months, it was drinking through a fire hose for me. Um, everybody in the office was getting sick of all the questions that I was asking. But then uh, over time, I actually like knew what I was doing and and got this holistic view of how a real estate deal is born. And and so it's a really good thing for a young person to to learn the business, kind of the nuts and bolts of the business. So that was my first job. Okay. And what type of investor profile were you typically working on? Were you working with lots of institutions or lots of mom and pop buyers? Was, was there like a core theme of who you were working with? Well, you can kind of imagine. So the type of firm that's going to offer somebody a job who has no clue what they want to do um, was a smaller firm in Dallas that focused on small balance loans. Um, so really their stated goal, their advertising was like a firm that focuses on one to $10 million loans. And at that time, for the commercial properties, truly like the retail and the hotel and stuff like that, it was CMBS. And for uh, apartments, 
it was almost entirely through a program at LaSalle Bank out of Chicago and had a direct relationship with them. It was before Fannie and Freddie played a big role in the small balance space. There was no Freddie SBL at that time. There was no Fannie small balance. So, so it was really through this one bank out of Chicago that made a market and through CMBS. Okay. And then, so you got started in 05, and then we all know what happened a couple of years later. How are you navigating that situation? Yeah. So um, at that time I'd gotten a promotion, I was actually like running the, the pool of analysts. Um, so I had, I was 23, four or five, and I had some employees working underneath me, um, getting some management experience. And I'd learned the industry a little bit more. And all of a sudden things started happening that certainly I'd never seen before. Um, liquidity started drying up. It was almost impossible to get deals done. And all of a sudden, um, you know, people started getting laid off in the industry. That was new to me, but also a little scary. And so I had a mentor who'd been in real estate for a very long time, went to him and talked it through. What do I do? I'm young. I could switch. I could stay in this. I like it. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. And his advice still sticks with me today. And it's, it's very pertinent now, uh, not for me, but for a lot of young folks, which is if you want to continue doing this, you should, but you have to acknowledge that the next few years, you're not going to make any money. And he said something like, you're not going to make much money, but uh, I really didn't make any money. I mean, it was like $12,000 or something the next year. Um, and, you know, you go through those, those years and really treat them like learning experiences and networking ex experiences. Because when you come out on the other side, if you've done it correctly, you've made great, um, you, you've increased your client base. And a lot of the other people in the industry that are your age or a little bit older have left. And now all of a sudden, you're the only one left or one of few left. And you're able to build a business around the people that you've, you've networked with during the bottom of the cycle. So what were you doing? Like, let's walk through that kind of that time frame. So, I mean, 2008, not much activity. Same with nine, 10. How did that, what were you doing all day? Sure. Um, so part of it is networking, right? Going to every conference and um, also just learning about the different buildings in the market. Um, you know, so any lending program that was available, you're trying to figure out, well, what are they actually lending on? Um, you know, the transaction volume was so far down that it was really easy to track every project that was happening. All six of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then the other part of it is I went back to business school in 2010 and that was a part-time program. So I'm working at the same time as I was going to school. Okay. Want to go on a little side note here. Um, do you think if someone wants to do what you do today, and we'll get into that a little bit later, do you think college is the best route for it? And I guess also an MBA or a master's in real estate development? Yeah, I think college today is, is, is almost necessary. Um, you know, people just expect that. And I think that you learn a lot, the nuts and bolts of, of accounting and finance and uh, just certain things. So yes, I do think for college, it is a necessary thing, uh, especially if you're raising money from others. Um, business school, 
um, is is not necessary to do what we do in the development business or or as a syndicator or uh, to raise money from others. But it helped me. Um, I only had a background in mortgage brokerage, and I learned the nuts and bolts of how to do a deal uh, during that time. But I'd never been a developer. I didn't really understand the different equity structures that you could do and the basics of entrepreneurship. I don't think I understood. I'd always been an employee and the program I chose at SMU did have a pretty strong background in entrepreneurship. And so getting all of that, as well as building a network with other people in Dallas around my age who were kind of seeking the same things, that was really important for me. So I don't know that I wouldn't have learned all that stuff by going out and doing it, because I think I would have, but it just gave it all to me in a very short period of time. Cool. Okay, so you finish your MBA, and then you do your first deal in 2012? Yeah, so I was in a part-time MBA program at SMU. So I was still working. I'd gotten married in 2009, so new marriage, and I was in school. Just uh, the most and stressful that was, things possible. Yeah, nights and weekends, so three huge things. And by the way, the market kind of recovered in 2010, so I was busy again. So work, school, marriage, and at all times, one thing was suffering, <laughs> right? Um, but once I finished school, it felt like this big weight was lifted, and I felt like I had all the time in the world. And all of a sudden, I said, well, I think I have the capacity to go do something in addition to mortgage brokerage. Like this big void was left now that school's gone and I have these new tools that I've learned. So how can I put that to work? And that's when I kind of said, well, hey, I, I think maybe we could go buy some some properties. Um, and so that was the next venture. So let's talk about that first deal. How did you find it? How did you capitalize it? How did you, how did you feel confident in what you were doing? Sure. Um, it was there was no secret sauce behind finding it i think it was listed on the mls um it was in a neighborhood that we knew well um in the oaklawn area of dallas um the the pricing was good so i learned how to underwrite based on an unlevered yield on cost so said it, it's selling for this i'm going to do these renovations we're going to increase rents to this and and based on that the unlevered yield on cost is significantly above the market cap rates and so that worked for us. So really back of the envelope underwriting. And so we went for it. Um, my wife and I were half of the equity and my mother-in-law was the other half of the equity. So so very straightforward investor list. Yep. Um, we ended up owning it for a year and a day and we doubled our money. Um, That's so, not too bad. So it was great. Yeah. yeah. So then we were off to the races. And so was it, you did that deal, finished it and said, that was awesome. Let's go do another one. Exactly. Or did you, uh, when when did you buy the second one? Yeah, um, within a couple months after the first one. Did you you didn't ten thirty one exchange? Did no, you? we needed the money. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, so let's walk through. I mean, I guess let's skip ahead to kind of today and what you're doing. You've got a huge, huge project going on. Uh, Lake Cliff is that what it's currently called? Yeah, uh, we call it Bishop Ridge today. Bishop Ridge. So there was a big marketing effort. Um, Lake Cliff is a park that's just to the west of the, of the kind of area where we own a bunch of real estate. 
Um, but we renamed the area Bishop Ridge after the Bishop Arts District. And also, um, a hundred, really 150 years ago, um, when this was just a bunch of farms, um, this little area was owned by the Horde family, H-O-R-D. And they called their farm Horde's Ridge. And so we're playing off an area called Bishop Arts and then Horde's Ridge. And so we decided to call it Bishop Ridge. Appreciate the spelling distinction there. By the way. <laughs> yeah, you're so. welcome there. Okay. Um, kind of give us the scope of this project and how big it is today. And then let's get back into the origin story of how you found it. Sure. Well, playing into, you know, what we'd always done, we started by buying just some renovation properties. So it started with eight renovation properties that went well. We bought some more renovation properties that went well. We bought a bunch of land that nobody wanted and, and started developing on it. So as of today, it's, it's trending towards a thousand units. That is awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, all kind of an accident, but yes. Okay. Um, what was the first deal in that neighborhood then? Was it a renovation project? I'm assuming? Well, the first deal ever in that neighborhood was the third deal I ever did uh, back in 2014, um, but sold that in, in 2015, right? Another quick flip because we yep. needed the money. Yep. Um, but learned and understood that neighborhood long ago. And then there was always this little pocket of that area that was just blighted, had a lot of crime, was a little bit scary, but we knew that if we could buy a bunch in that little pocket, that we could probably get a critical mass, probably make it worth our time and investment. And, it, but again, we needed to have enough critical mass to do so. And so in 2020, 2019, 2020, a portfolio of eight buildings came up for sale uh, from one owner and they were really, really crummy buildings. These were 40% occupied, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, really, really rough. And why? how does something that, how one, how big was the portfolio? And two, how does it get so bad? 282 units. Um, it got so bad because it was owned by a guy who was from Japan. Uh, he'd never been to Dallas. Managed by a group out of Corpus Christi. I don't think they'd ever been to Dallas. <laughs> um, and this guy just bought it for, for tax reasons. So if a Japanese person buys real property anywhere in the world that's older than 20 years old, that's stick frame and less than three stories, then they can depreciate it over four years. Wow. Uh, yeah. But they also don't really care <laughs> about the building and about the operating cash flow and about anything really. And so this thing had just gone to hell over his ownership period. And so it had made the whole neighborhood go to hell. And so we were able to go in and buy the worst part of the neighborhood. And by fixing it up, it turned the neighborhood around. And you've mentioned it as kind of the hole of the donut yep. before. What did the kind of the outside of the donut look like? Were they pretty nice or were they, you know, B minus areas? What did those look like? Well, so I mentioned a couple things already, right? There's Lake Cliff Park, mm -hmm. which is a hundred plus year old park that's 40 acres that's next door to us. There's the Bishop Arts District where every national developer has, has planted a flag over the last few years. 
There's a new park um, called the Southern Gateway Deck Park that's a hundred plus million dollar project, an infrastructure project. So so Texas Department of Transportation, City of Dallas, Dallas County, they're all paying for this. That's connecting our neighborhood to the to the Dallas Zoo. Um, there's a piece of land just to the north of us that um, is is being redeveloped. We're right next to the city of da- uh, to downtown Dallas, where a five billion dollar bond pro- uh, project is about to start. So it's like all these things are happening around us, and we're just right in the middle. Okay, and. You've kind of branded yourself as the Opportunity Zone guy on social media. Let's walk through how that happened and kind of where you you learned, like, I was born to be the Opportunity Zone guy. <laughs> well, again, it was all kind of by accident. But uh, what we didn't talk about is that Bishop Ridge is an Opportunity Zone project. Um, and that was another reason that we were kind of emboldened to go take it on in the first place. Um, so for a long time, I'd been on Twitter. I just kind of listened along. Um, guys like Moses and Chris Powers and and all these guys would talk. And every once in a while, I would comment or, or whatever, but really just kind of listened. Then I started talking and posting a little bit about apartment stuff, but nobody really cared what I said. It was it was lost in a sea of people talking about apartments and, and other stuff. I cared. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Um, but what I did realize is that the people who talked about very specific things and they shared their experience openly about those specific things and tried to educate others about those specific things, no matter how weird those things were, those were the people who who kind of grew an audience. And now growing an audience just to grow an audience doesn't make any sense. But but if you're growing an audience and that allows you to have a broader Rolodex to, to make connections like, like you and I have, or, um, you know, to have investors or to do deals in a co-GP structure or a lot of different things, um, that can be really lucrative. And that was my goal. And as I started talking more and more about OZ, people started following along, asking questions. I, I met more people and got to ask them questions. And so I just kept doing it. And for the past three years, it's been a really interesting journey. Let's, if someone's listening to this podcast and they have no idea what an opportunity zone is, uh, what is an opportunity zone? Sure. And that's a big question. Yep. <laughs> but uh, opportunity zone is a census tract. Um, so in, in 2018, the government said, hey, there's all these areas all over the country. There's almost 9,000 of them. Then they're designated low-income areas based on the 2010 census data. They're designated low-income areas for investment. And if you invest there, you get certain tax benefits. And it's meant to entice long-term patient investment in these areas to hopefully improve them. And so what are those tax benefits? Well, if someone has had a capital gain, so either short or long-term, from selling stocks, selling a business, selling real estate, anything, then they can get these, these uh, you know, benefits. So Tanner, if, if you sold some Apple stock this year and you have a capital gain, instead of paying that tax next April, which you, you owe because you made money on the Apple stock, but instead of paying that tax next April, if you invest in an opportunity zone fund, you now get to defer that tax through April of 2027. So that's benefit number one. And a lot of people stop there. They say, great, I don't owe my taxes for four years. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
but but that's really the smallest benefit by far. The biggest benefit is to incentivize that long-term patient investment. And because of that, the legislation aligns a 10-year hold period on this investment in an opportunity zone census tract with the biggest benefit. And the biggest benefit is after a 10-year hold period, you get what's called a step up in basis. The only other time somebody gets that is if they die. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd rather be an OZ investor than, than have to die to get this step up in basis. Same and, with me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if, if you hold an opportunity zone investment for 10 years, you get a step up in basis. And what that means is on this investment in real estate, in you know this little pocket in Dallas, in an area that we're really excited about, you hold it for 10 years, it goes up in value. You don't pay any capital gains tax on that investment. And number two, we depreciate it all along the way. So we pass losses to our investors. And at the end, they don't have to recapture any of that depreciation, which is a technical term. But it, what it means is that my investors are happy for 10 years. And then at the end, they never have to pay uh, the government for those losses, which is a really good thing. Yeah, usually when you're happy for 10 years, the government comes and bites you in the ass later. <laughs> That's a typical real estate deal, and ours are better. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And you're such an expert on this now, but how... How did you learn about all the, how did you become this expert? Was it a lot of Googling? Were you talking to CPAs and tax attorneys? Yes, talking with a lot of people. And I had lunch today with uh, with one of our tax attorneys um, and we were kind of joking about this. So he started earlier than I did on the OZ stuff. And he, basically he had a client contact him in 2018. They owned some land in an OZ and they asked him to learn about it. And he said within six months, he was on the speaking circuit <laughs> as an expert in OZ. But it's really a new program that's it's not mature. Um, you know, the comparable stuff is like new market tax credits or LIHTC or, or other things like that. Well, those have been around a really long time. And there are like experts who have actually been in it for decades. With Opportunity Zone, there's not. And so now all of a sudden, if you've been doing it two years, three years, you're the expert. And, and that's really how it happened. When I started in 2020, there really weren't many experts. So you're just calling around, you're talking to attorneys, you're talking to CPAs, you're talking with other developers. And all of a sudden, if you've asked enough questions, you've kind of synthesized enough information, well, you know more than everybody else. Yes, I think uh, opportunity zones in general might be the most misunderstood part of real <laughs> estate ever. The amount of fully stabilized, fully renovated, fully tenanted buildings I've gotten with a headline of Opportunity Zone is remarkable. Yes. So you talked about all the great tax benefits that you get. You can't just buy one of those stabilized buildings. What do you actually have to do to earn those benefits? Sure. There's there's three types of deals that fit the best. So number one, you're either doing a ground-up development. Uh, number two, you're buying a building and doing what's called a substantial renovation. Uh, which is what it sounds like. You're substantially renovating a building. And number three, you're buying a building that's been vacant for a long time and you're renovating it and, and reopening it. Um, so those are the three types of projects that work, uh, once again, within those census tracts that have been designated as Opportunity Zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the fun little loopholes of this is buying new construction that is vacant and taking advantage 
how confident are we that that's fine? that's been blessed by a whole lot of attorneys okay, yeah so it has to be before it's placed in service so commonly people say well i'm going to buy it before it has a co well technically the legislation says it's before it's placed in service hmm. so a building can have a co oh as long as nobody's moved in and it's it has not been placed in service then it can be purchased and the buyer can get the opportunities on benefits. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. So I uh, want to get into kind of the business of uh, your company and how it looks today. What does the team look like today? You're involved in property management and general contracting as well. How does that all fit together? Sure. Pretty seamlessly. Um, so you know, we started this in 2012 and 13 and, and kind of kept doing deals. Well, somewhere along the way, uh, met a guy named Seth Bame, and Seth was kind of doing the same thing that I was. Um, except when he started, he started building a property management construction management business. And I was doing my mortgage brokerage was kind of my other business. But both of us were moonlighting as, as property investors and operators. And we became clients of one another. So I started using him for property management and construction, and he started using me for mortgage brokerage. Uh, but we were still doing our own deals. And eventually we started competing with each other to buy stuff. So we're buddies, we're clients of one another, but then we would show up on site tours and, you know, <laughs> kind of say, each other. <laughs> oh, you're here too. Um, so, you know, I, I got one deal that he wanted, then he got one deal that I wanted. And then, then eventually we said, well, hey, this doesn't make any sense. Why don't we partner on the next one? You know, let's, let's raise the money together. Let's get the loan together. Um, and naturally, we kind of had our own roles because my background was much more technical, you know, on the loan side, on the operating agreement, on the structuring and business planning. And his background was much more on the property management, construction management side. Um, so, you know, since then, we've really been very, um, you know, very able to stay in our own lanes yeah. and, and divide those roles well. Yeah. I, one of the common partnership failures that I've seen over the years is just two people doing the exact same job and then getting mad at the other person because they feel like they're doing 60%. The other person thinks that they're doing 70%. Um, so it's, I mean, obviously nice that uh, you guys have your own roles. Okay. Um, Want to talk about like a fastball deal for you. Are you looking outside of Dallas these days? We do. We look all over Texas. Um, it takes a very compelling deal for us to go outside of Dallas though. So in our history, this Seth and I combined, um, we have worked on 56 projects total. Uh, we've sold 28 of those, I believe. So about half. Um, but of the 56 total projects, 50 of those have been in the city of Dallas. So we're homers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also what that means is those six deals that haven't been in Dallas, we've been really motivated to do those deals for one reason or another. Um, you know, the returns are really high. The basis was really great. Some reason or another, we've said this deal is worth leaving home for. How far outside of Dallas were they? Uh, we've done San Antonio, Houston, 
uh, Paris, Texas, which is like two hours to the northeast. Uh, working on one in Austin now, um, but everything else in Dallas. Yeah, I saw, uh, I can't remember who tweeted it the other day, but they said good deals don't generally have wings. Like they don't. <laughs> yeah. Like if a deal flies from St. Louis to Salt Lake City, I get a little worried about it. Okay, so let's walk through a so dream location, likely Dallas because of the economies of scale. Would you prefer to do ground up development or would you prefer to do a really heavy value add? I'm kind of agnostic there. Okay. Yeah. Um, on those heavy value ads, is there anything in particular that you kind of landmines you try and stay away from, whether it's age of the building, type of the building, location, any, anything come to mind on that? I mean, there's a whole list of landmines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know that it's as generic as, um, you know, you can't paint with a broad brush. Um, it's just kind of like you're walking through and you'll say, well, that sucks. We got to replace, you know, the stab block breakers, you know, stab block breakers always suck, yep. but there's a price to fix them. And so I think the, the thing I'll just lean back on is something I said earlier, which is we always just are doing back of the envelope underwriting. And you're saying, well, what's my purchase price? What's my cost to renovate? And what's my NOI going to be when I'm done? And if it works there, then it works great. Well, you can fool yourself though. <laughs> you know, I've done it many a time. Yeah, because the the input costs you can fool yourself with. What's your NOI going to be? Well, what are my rents and expenses going to be? You know, what's my what's my vacancy factor going to be? Well, and then you go to what's my renovation cost going to be? Well, if you say well those stab block breakers are going to cost me 50 bucks each to replace, well guess what? Your renovation costs are wrong and your unlevered yield on cost is also wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, I guess that kind of goes back to the landmines. Um, I think those are probably some of the biggest landmines. Okay. Um, you said you did 56 deals, uh, or 50 all in Dallas. Um, do you have any, do you have like a minimum deal size these days or anything, any specific things that you're really looking for? Yeah. Um, so if someone brought us a deal in or close to Bishop Ridge, which we know know them all now, yep. but over there, there's a couple deals that we would gladly buy that are 10, 15, 20 units. I mean, we would we would show up with earnest money, you know, tomorrow morning or this afternoon. If you're a broker. <laughs> right. We're ready to go. Yep. The brokers know us. Yep. <laughs> um, but if it was in a different part of town where we don't currently have a critical mass, it would need to be 100, 150, 200 units. I mean, much more substantial. Um, the reason that we're so willing to buy something smaller in Bishop Ridge is because we've built centralized uh, management. So we actually manage everything out of a house there. So our leasing team, our management team, our maintenance team, they're, they don't office in one building. They they office in a house. And so if I want to plug in a 20-unit property, well, that's super easy for me to do now. It doesn't require me to probably even hire anyone new. I'm just plugging it in. Um, versus if I wanted to buy a 20-unit building, you know, in, in Grand Prairie, 40 minutes away or 30 minutes away, well, I have to think through how would I actually operate that property? 
Okay. Um, <clears throat> how are you? Let's say I bring you that mythical 50 unit in Bishop Ridge these days. How do you think about capitalizing it? Um, and with the opportunity zone, you need to hold it for 10 years. Do you have any, when do you plan on selling all of this stuff? So I don't know. Yep. <laughs> um, it's probably all together as one portfolio 10 years from now. To Blackstone, I assume. Sure. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting. You know, there's, there's some weird quirks in the OZ um, rules to where you could technically exit as a REIT. Um, and give some people liquidity and, and other people could stay in. So there's, there's some interesting things that we'll, uh, certainly explore, um, you know, going forward. But I think the most likely sale is the simplest one in that we, we just exit all at once. Um, but I think every market is different, you know, two, three years ago, the easiest thing would have been to pull the ripcord and sell it as one big deal. Um, at some point in the future, it might be to sell it off as, as smaller individual properties. So I don't know. Okay. Um, that REIT thing is fascinating, by the way. I didn't know that you could do that. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Um, what are you guys doing at Savoy that you feel like other operators are kind of missing or if there's any kind of special sauce that you guys are doing to your projects that maybe other people are maybe not as attentive or they don't care as much or I guess what, why should someone invest with you rather than someone else in the area? Well, I think it's a couple things. Um, so I think our vertical integration is is actually a thing, right? So we have three companies that are in one office and that's property management, that's construction management, and that's us. So Savoy is actually the smallest team in the office. There's just four of us. Our construction management team is 29 people and our property management team is several hundred people. Um, and that allows us as Savoy to have deep insight into what's going on with every piece of the puzzle, because the property management team and the construction management team is working on projects all over the Metroplex and understands on a daily basis, what things cost, how things are operating, what rents are, all those things. And we can utilize that data to make investment decisions. Um, but on the Savoy side specifically. I think we're just extremely in tune with what the tax adjusted returns are. And so if someone is educated enough about real estate investing to understand that it's not about what you make, it's about what you keep, well, then we're the right fit for them because we think about that every day. What tax credits can I layer in? You know, if I, you know, make this change, can I get a tax credit for our LPs? Um, you know, all, all those little things, we're working on that constantly. Can we talk a little bit about the tax credits? Sure. I, I think a lot of people, we just had uh, Dan Lofgren on from Cowboy Partners and he does low-income housing tax credits. What type of tax credits are you using these days? Sure, we've used historic tax credits. We've used 45L tax credits. Um, we've looked into, but have not used solar tax credits. Um, we've obviously used Opportunity Zone. In Texas, we're using, this is not a tax credit, but it's a, it's a structure called Public Facilities Corporation, which is a property tax uh, abatement. Um, so just a lot of different levers that you can pull. What's the 45L? Uh, 45L is where you build to a specific energy standard. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you can get up to $5,000 per unit as a dollar for dollar tax credit as soon as you have a CO. So you're the perfect investor for you is just someone who makes a bunch of money and their biggest problem is their tax burden, really. Um, yeah, even if they don't make a bunch of money, right? A lot of these tax credits are good for 20 years. So if, if they have an income, if, then if they, they don't can like use paying it. taxes, they should give you a call. Correct. And, and even if it's they don't, not that they don't like paying taxes, it's that if they understand the value of not paying taxes, um, because we can tell you what that does to your returns, your tax adjusted returns. Yeah. I saw someone else on Twitter the other day posted a like compounding, compounding on your sales. I think it was a 1031 guy compounding with taxes versus without them. And it is remarkable yep. the difference. Okay. Want to get into some of your, uh, some of the tweets that I was looking at before, uh, the interview, you had a huge viral tweet about Meridian Capital and Freddie Mac. Um, just give us the cliff notes for people who uh, might not know exactly how that changes stuff. Sure. As a mortgage broker, I would see something happen every once in a while that's worth explaining to people, which is somebody would come to me for a loan and they would say, here's all the financials. Here's the rent roll. Here's all the information on the property. Could you underwrite this for a Fannie Mae or a Freddie Mac loan and tell me what, what you think is possible? I would say, sure, you're buying it for 20 million bucks. I'm going to underwrite it the best I can. And then, you know, give me 24 hours. And I figure out I could give that person a, a $13 million loan. That's the best I can do. And I've, I've pulled every lever. I feel like I'm pretty good at what I do. Here's your loan amount. And then they would say, okay, well, sorry, I'm going with somebody else. <laughs> okay. Well, I, you know, it's kind of a commodity. I know that I did the best I could, you know, maybe I smell that day. <laughs> well, then I would see it in a, in a trade magazine or something a couple months later. And I found out that that guy got a loan for 15 and a half million from, from Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. He say, well, I mean, I'm not that big of an idiot. Like yeah. <laughs> something, something weird went on here. I mean, I, I did the best I could and I know my business and I could only get him 13 million and he got 15 and a half through the same program that I know the rules for. And something, something's off. And that, that happened not often, but you know, it would happen once or twice a year. It sounds like something similar may have happened in the Meridian situation. Now I, I don't know that that's not fact, but, that's kind of what it sounds like. That's what the rumor mill is saying. And I know that I saw that happen firsthand in my experience as a mortgage broker years and years ago. And so now Freddie and Fannie have come back and they've said, hey, listen, what they have seen is that loans from mortgage brokers have a higher incidence of fraud. So the financial statements uh, from the properties, the financial statements of borrowers are getting monkeyed with at some point in the process. And so the only way that we're going to accept those is if the borrowers send them to us directly. So if let's say you were some fraudulent mortgage company and I was a fraudulent borrower, 
borrower, I would send you in financials and you would tweak them to get me the largest loan amount. Is that kind of what was happening then? That is, I believe, what has happened. Yeah. Okay. And to combat that, is it Freddie and Fanny or is it just Freddie? My understanding now is that Freddie was the one who first noticed something amiss. And now Fanny has followed suit saying that they have noticed something amiss. Kind of side note on this. Do we know why that they're two different things? Uh, there have always been two separate. I mean, there's there's Fanny, Freddie, Penny Mac, Jenny May. Uh, I feel like, like we should all just combine them. At this yeah, point. There's a lot of different, you know, government related yeah. financing institutions. Okay, so how does this um, how does this affect the average sponsor? So I've thought quite a bit about that, and like, hey, within six months or a year, could this change things a lot for us in any way? And I can't figure that out yet. Um, So I I don't know the answer. Um, You know, right now, a lot of it is because rates are high. Transaction volume on the acquisition side is so low. Fannie and Freddie are way below their lending goals. And so I don't think that they're going to broadly make a big change to their programs this year. Um, I do think that they're going to be on the lookout like for fraud. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's not the worst thing in the world. Okay. Um, want to talk about another tweet you had about condo HOAs possibly becoming distressed sellers. Sure. You did a condo deconversion. So let's start with that. Sure. One of the more interesting and certainly more complicated projects we've ever done. Um, in several states, Texas included, um, if you buy 80% of a condo HOA, you can force the sale of the remaining 20% of the units through a judicial process. That's crazy. (laughs) So, um, I can say, well, Hey, now I own 80% of the units. I'm going to go get an appraisal. I'm going to buy the remaining 20% of the units for appraised value. And those remaining 20% of the owners have no say in whether or not I'm able to close. Uh, How did that go for you? I went fine. Um, So a lot of open, honest communication. You're having condo HOA board meetings where everyone shows up um, and you're negotiating, right? So if it's, if it's an investor-owned unit, they're showing up and saying, "Well, hey, I'm. I guess I'm okay if you buy it, but like I have a tenant, and here's the lease." <laughs> He's, yeah, great. Um, or if it's owner-occupied, you're negotiating with them, saying, um, "I understand this is your home. Would you like to stay, or are you going to leave? And if you'd like to stay, we would like you to stay. And here's how we're going to deal with that. You know, so there's a lot of communication involved around it, but overall, it was very smooth. I mean. We went in day one saying, we do not want to be on the news. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, it's a we, good business plan in itself. Like, no matter what, we want to treat everyone fairly. Um, we know it's legal, right? So start there, but that's a very low bar. We want to treat everyone fairly here and make sure that everything's above board. And so we did that and it went very smoothly. How did, was it just one investor had a bunch of the units or how did that unfold? That was the starting point. Um, so on day one, it was, this was a really weird property. It was like the mullet of, of properties. 
It was built in the mid 80s during SNL. And um, so it was about a 300 unit property. Well, 180 of the units were actually apartments. And then 120 of the units were condos. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, kind of. So, so, so on yeah. day one, we bought 180 apartments. And then we bought 70 out of 120 of the condos. Were you buying them one by one? No, no. That was all day one. Okay. So day one, 180 apartments, and then 70 out of 120 of the condos. But, but on the condos, if we wanted to own all of them, we had to own 80% of them. Yep. So then we started buying the condos one by one. That is fascinating. How, do you know why they, why that situation happened? Like, wh- how did someone? Yeah. So, so the condos were actually built first, the 120 condos, and the developer. This is w- what we're guessing. Um, the developer started selling them, but this is in the mid '80s when interest rates were in the teens, and so they started selling them, but only were able to sell a few. And so then they stopped selling condos and said, you know what? We have this big piece of land. We're going to continue developing, but the back half we're not doing for sale condos. We're going to build apartments. So is it one big building or how did the... It's geometry? five buildings. Okay. Um, and the front two buildings are condos and the back three units are apartments. Hmm. So it's a... Well, and now, I mean, you know, the punchline is that we were able to complete the HOA termination and turn the front two buildings into apartments. And so now it's a 300 unit apartment building. I called my attorney a couple months ago, or I guess it was probably a little over a year ago and said, Hey, I want to do a condo conversion. And he thought I was talking about buying a condo community and turning them to apartments. And when I told him I wanted to buy apartments and told him to turn them into condos, he was very relieved. So it sounds like a very fun process. Well, they're both, um, it's interesting because at different points in the cycle and in different parts of the country, both things can make sense. And with that 80% rule, did you say that's just in Texas? Um, Texas, Florida, and Illinois all have similar statutes. Um, and I think many other states do as well. I just don't know specifically. Okay. How did you capitalize that first round like were you going to equity partners and saying we're going to buy this whole thing it was one family office um and it was interesting interesting that (laughs) sounds fun um i know fannie mae and freddie mac have like uh fractured condo programs is that what you used on it or no it was all local bank financing um because if you fannie and freddie both are really, really weird about you changing their collateral in any way. So for example, if you went to Fannie and Freddie and you said, hey, you finance this apartment building and I want to add a swimming pool, they wouldn't like that. Hmm. They're just really weird. Um, And so it's kind of the same on the fractured condo thing where uh, they might finance 100 out of 120 condos for you and keep the HOA in place. But if then you said, hey, I've decided that I want to force the sale of the last 20 units and terminate the HOA, they would lose their mind. (laughs) So it was much better to do it with a local bank. Okay. And so getting back to the 
question that I uh, first started with, condo HOAs could become distressed sellers. How so? Well, so think about um, just a middle of the fairway, 100-unit condo building. Um, the board is typically three, four, five people who probably don't have a commercial real estate background, right? Strip mall guys tweeted extensively about yeah, this. It's just a couple random people, right? And they're setting the dues based on their gut instinct, just trying to say, well, you know, what were our utility bills last year? Oh, the landscaper wants more money. You know, <laughs> what's our insurance? You know, okay, well, the dues are going to be 212 bucks, which is a 1% increase. And I hope that everybody won't yell at us too much about a 1% increase. Like that's that. Well, they're not thinking about, hey, that roof is 18 years old and is going to need to be replaced. Or those railings aren't aren't with current code. And if the city shows up, we're going to have to do that. And that's going to be 110,000 bucks. They're not thinking about any of that stuff. Um, they just want the dues to stay at $212, <laughs> right? Yep. And forget about like a CapEx reserve. There's no money, <laughs> right? If something were to actually happen, they don't have any money for it. And so all of a sudden, if something bad does happen, right, a, a sewer line needs replacement or uh, the city does show up and tell them they need to replace the railings. Well, now all of a sudden they have to do a special assessment. Well, that could be a couple hundred grand. And to each condo owner, that could be several thousand bucks. Well, some of these condos are only worth $150,000. So like, that might be more than your annual property taxes. So now all of a sudden, these condo owners are like, well, I don't want to own this anymore. And that's where, as an apartment investor, you could come in and say, well, hey, these guys are willing to sell for say they think their unit is worth a hundred grand, maybe they'd be willing to sell for 120,000 a unit. Well, I think as apartments renovated, maybe it's worth 150,000 a unit. Okay. Well, that's worth some brain damage. So are you, is this a strategy that you're actively pursuing? Are you calling HOA managers and saying, no, uh, if one fell out of the sky, we would, we would go after it. It's a really difficult strategy to pursue because there is no data on this stuff. So you have to build your, your own data set. Um, and we've started and stopped and started and stopped, but um, at some point we'll pursue it with some vigor. Cool. Um, Wanna kind of bring it home with, we had a, great conversation, or at least I did. I don't know how much you got out of it, where you were talking to me about growing the operating company uh, side of your business. And I think real estate's a great, it's a great business, but I think the buy, the business of buying real estate and operating it well is an even better business. And so want to talk to you about kind of what you told me about growing your operating company and how you think about that. Sure. Um, and I've learned so much from, from Chris Powers on how he thinks about this and, and Jason Baxter and how they're building for it. Um, so I'll really encourage anyone who's 
who wants to learn more about this to listen to them and how they talk about it. I'm going to say anybody who listens to this has listened to all of Chris's <laughs> Great. Um, but I would say a couple conversations with Jason and Chris have really changed my thinking. And, and perhaps the most is, you know, what Chris is building, you know, he's looking up to companies, um, you know, that are huge. And when those companies have a dollar of free cash flow, um, it's growing their value by 10, 15, 20 bucks. And that, and the way Chris is thinking about it, he's inspired me to kind of think about it the same way, which is like, hey, when Savoy has a dollar of free cash flow, it's increasing Savoy's value by 10, 15, 20 bucks. And I had never, ever thought about our business that way. I mean, I've told you quite a bit about our track record today. And as you can tell, we've just been focused on doing good deals and had not maybe stopped to think about, well, what should we be really building? Um, and I think the answer isn't necessarily to focus on fees, right? But it should be to have an eye towards what are we trying to build in the long run? Uh, by doing good deals. And and so we're thinking more and more with an eye towards that. And I think a lot of that is uh, kind of growing your investor base. And I think you've done a phenomenal job of that by, <laughs> you know, honing in on the op zone crowd like we uh, talked about earlier. How I, I guess, can we go a little bit deeper into, you know, how you think about raising capital, kind of what you hope to provide potential investors and that, I, I guess, why would someone invest with you on that stuff? Sure. Um, well, I think as far as OZ investors go, um, you know, two, three years ago, it was really easy. I could call anyone and say, Hey, you got any capital gains? And the answer was yes. <laughs> right. Yep. I just bought a JPEG monkey and it went up a hundred grand. Yes. Um, you know, and I'd love to sell it and invest in real estate. Um, and today those conversations are, are harder to begin, right? Um, so much smaller percentage of people have capital gains today. I think the, the really good thing is doing all this talking on, on social media, at conferences, all these other things is that now I'm getting referred a lot of people who have had meaningful capital gains. So where I can't just pick up the phone and find somebody who made a hundred grand, uh, I'm having a lot of talks with people who made 10, 50, a hundred million dollars and they would like opportunity zone to be a part of their strategy for dealing with that liquidity event. Um, so, so that's been a really nice thing. That sounds nice. Yeah. Um, but in general, I think that our investor, like I said before, is just someone who, um, wants to invest long-term in a tax advantage way because we're set up for that, right? Both Seth and I have been in the real estate investment business for our whole careers, uh, plan on being in Dallas in the real estate investment business for the rest of our careers, and um, and want investors who wanna be along the ride with us. I think let's leave it there. This has been awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Tanner.